What's going on, guys? Before we talk some travel with Global Gaz, I'm shocked. We're in week 14 of the NFL season. Teams have less than a handful of games left. I always say nothing goes as fast as the NFL season. And because we only have a few games left, you know what that means? Every game means something. Make some money on this. BetDSI.com. Use the promo code SAFO. BetDSI.com slash SAFO. I love BetDSI. I win. I get paid. For over 20 years, BetDSI has been in the business. Now that's reputable. Go to any betting review site. BetDSI is always top rated. Use the sports knowledge for something else than winning an argument at the bar. Win some money. BetDSI, it has this very user-friendly interface. The mobile site's a breeze. And a lot of people hate putting their bank account or credit cards online. You know what? I don't mind doing it, but if you do, use Bitcoin. It pays out in Bitcoin. It pays out in cash, whatever you want. It has the fastest payout in history. You win your bet, boom, you get paid instantly. Cash right out. You can bet MLB futures. Who's going to win the World Series next year? NBA, NFL, NHL, UFC, politics, you name it, BetDSI has it. I always say how much I love the live betting. You can watch a game. You don't have to bet the beginning of the game. You're watching a game. You get a pulse. You get a feel of the game. Then you bet it. Makes nice, easy money that way. New members get a 120% bonus match using the promo code SAFO. That's more than double your money to start winning today. I recommend BetDSI to anyone who wants to dabble, have some fun, make some money for the holidays. Once again, BetDSI.com. Use the promo code SAFO. Get this limited time. 120% bonus offer plus a $25 free wager to test the waters. Don't miss out. Go make some extra cash. It's betting season. There's only a few games left. Remember, it's only a game until you use BetDSI. BetDSI, make some money for the holidays. BetDSI.com slash Sappho. Global Gaz, what's going on, my friend? Just enjoying a wintry Monday morning. Yeah, where are you? You're up in Boston, right? I am uh, back in Boston for a combination Thanksgiving Christmas holiday. How horrible is this weather? We're getting because I'm down in New York City. It's like this rainy, slush, horrendous, cold wind right now. Something similar to that here in Boston. So you know, I think it's what we expect growing up in New England. So I've seen worse. I just want to thank you for coming on because you're one of the hosts of my favorite podcast, Counting Countries. How long have you been doing that podcast for? That podcast has been taking place for over three years. And give me the idea. First of all, explain exactly what it is and where that idea come from. Yeah, Counting Countries, the, the thesis is pretty simple. I'm interviewing people who've traveled to every country in the world or are in the process of traveling to every country in the world. So out of the seven people, seven billion people on Earth, it's pretty finite group of people that I am speaking to. Um, in terms of inspiration, I don't know exactly, uh, but at that point, I started getting into podcasts myself, and I was listening to a ton of them. And I also had some friends who were hosting their own podcast, and I guess the light bulb went on at one point that it might be pretty fascinating and interesting to talk to these people trying to do something so uh, audacious. You say, I believe in the beginning of your show, it's such an exclusive club that more people have been to outer space than have been documented in every country. Is that right? 
from my research, approximately 550 people have been to outer space. Uh-huh. And let's say, I mean, no one knows the exact number. We'll say a couple of hundred have traveled to every country in the world. Um, I bet, I don't know if it'll be three years or five years, but at some point in the near future, uh, those numbers will change and it will be more people traveling to every country in the world than the 550 going to outer space. I've been doing a podcast, I guess, for like seven or eight years now. And when I first started, I'm like, no one's going to care about me ranting about sports. But if I interview fascinating people, athletes, authors, um, astronauts, whoever, people are going to want to listen, hopefully, to that. And so many people have the idea, Gaz, of a podcast. But then after 10 episodes or after five, it's like, oh, crap, I don't have former New York Knicks basketball players to interview. Do you get nervous that eventually there's going to be kind of a hold on your podcast? Like, oh, crap, we need more people to start traveling more or who want to talk about it more. Or do you think because of the Instagram age, everyone wants to like promote their travels? Yeah, I think it's the latter, Mike. So also when I started this, whatever it was, three or four years ago, it seems like the group of people who had done it or who were doing it were was much smaller. But mm-hmm. literally just in the last couple of years – The number of people who are trying to complete this quest has really multiplied. So, yeah, maybe I I thought about that in the beginning, like, oh, there's probably, you know, only so many people I can interview. I don't think that anymore today. I mean, it seems like it's it's limitless. You know, the reality is I only do 12 12 episodes a year. So, I mean, I can can go on for 20, 30 years. (laughs) Um, I I should be okay. I'm not going to run out of guests. You mentioned you're back up in Boston. What's your first meal back home? Like what food do you miss the most when you're traveling the globe? Well, I stay with my dad. He lives in Brookline, just uh, a couple of miles outside of Boston. And walking distance from my dad's house is uh, shawarma king. So it's not <laughs> typically it's not typically what you think of when you think Bostonian food. But I love to go down there for a uh, chicken shawarma roll up, and that's definitely one of my first meals when I get to Boston. Where do you car- uh, currently call home? I call home Bangkok. Why the land of smiles? What what brought you to Bangkok? Yeah, so I'd been there once or twice uh, before during my travels. It's obviously a great country that offers so much for the traveler. Um, but what happened is I ended up reading this book called The Gospel of Father Joe. Okay. And this is a uh, real-life story of a, a Catholic priest who moves to Bangkok in the 1970s when Bangkok was an entirely different world. <laughs> um, he basically moves into the slums, into a shack uh, in Bangkok, and he creates – and over the last 50 years, he's created this incredible – outreach program helping the poor and disadvantaged so i was reading the book it was winter um i sort of uh, i also live in chicago i'm in chicago i'm freezing i'm reading this book and i'm like what am i doing Uh, i was working for myself at that point i had flexibility and i said to myself oh next year i'm gonna go volunteer for father joe and that's how i ended up spending so much time in thailand what and how long have you been there now for Basically since 2013. Wow. Do you speak Thai? So I said, I speak Thai a little bit. 
Okay, now, my wife, uh, she's Filipino, so the past three or four months, I've been learning Tagalog. Are, oh. you, try, are you trying to learn Thai, or it's like, ah, eh, just coming because you're immersed in it? Well, I'm not taking formal lessons, mm-hmm. um, so I've learned throughout the years, but I've also, I think, plateaued. So I have a very basic conversational knowledge. We'll call it 10-minute taxi conversations, mm-hmm. and I've kind of peaked, I think, at that point and at some level. I mean, I'd love to be fluent, but I'm not going to be taking lessons and making that big of an effort. So plateaued and kind of okay with it, I guess, at this point. One of my buddies works for Lonely Planet, Austin Bush, and he uh, he's out there in, in Bangkok, and he absolutely loves it. He says, one, it's a huge hub. So if you want to shoot to any Southeast Asian country, it's the place to be. It's like being in JFK down here in, uh, in New York. What's the best and worst thing about living in Thailand? Well, the two things that grade on me, one in Bangkok, this is specific to where I live, is the traffic is horrific. Um <laughs> And it's a impediment or a detriment. It's like at some level, I don't go out in Bangkok as much as I should or want to because I don't want to deal with the the traffic. Um, and the second negative attribute about Bangkok for me is at you know it's a two edged double edged sword. It's the weather that virtually every day with the heat you know with the humidity. It's basically 100 degrees at some level (laughs) every single day. So it's like, you know, you either got to take like five showers a day or, you know, you just you're just sweating all day. So when I travel, I'm the biggest sports fan in the world. So when I travel, that's what messes me up the most. I'm out here. The Yankees might be playing at 3 a.m. when I'm in Africa or something. What do you uh, what bothers you the most being out there? What do you miss the most? Um, well, I'll, I'll do a segue for that. So, um, don't get frustrated. I'm a giant Patriots fan as of I am course. from Boston. So is my wife. So we had to watch okay. that game last night when she was okay. screaming and yelling. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just somewhat crying. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's the one sport I basically watch religiously. So, and over time, it's changed. I mean, 10 years ago, it was, you know, it, it was challenging to watch a game. Mm-hmm. Now, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, it's 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 as crazy as this. Literally, I live in a high-rise building. And in my building in Bangkok, there's actually a sports bar called The Sportsman. Wow. And I can literally go down there and watch Patriot games. Um, I also have the uh, NFL package on my computer, so I can also stream – directly on my laptop i mean this year i've watched games on my laptop in afghanistan (laughs) pakistan uzbekistan uh so i'm always kind of laughing at myself it's like you know i'm I'm most likely the only person in this country (laughs) watching the patriots game right now now guys i had a few travels on my show uh and i'm always intrigued in the life they live so i work a regular job and yet i travel anytime i have a day off then there's guys and i know they've been on your show Lee Abamante, Henrik Yeppesen, whose life is to travel. Uh, then Dustin, I think, fun handle, I believe. He's, he's a dentist, yet he travels every day. Where do you fit into this travel spectrum? Are you a worker that travels on the side? Are you a full-time traveler? Explain where you fit into this section. Yeah, so I'm somewhere in the middle or all the above. Um, I, I say I have two jobs. The first job is I have a small business in Chicago. I'm a real estate investor. 
um, I've set it up in such a way where I can be nomadic or mobile as long as, as long as, of course, I have the internet. I probably only spend 15% of my time on that business, but it makes me 97% of my income. Okay. <laughs> my other business is travel related blogging, podcasting, networking, documentaries, et cetera, et cetera. I spend too much time on that and make you know very little money relatively. So I couldn't live off my travel blogging job. B- BT, before traveling, what were you doing? Did you have a normal job? Were you always a nomad? Was traveling in your blood? Where were you before you started like this lifelong journey? Yeah. So, I mean, we can look at the uh, 2008 is kind of the inflection point. I was working in the investment industry as a salesperson. And I'm sure you know this being in New York, 08, you know, uh, Lehman, well, actually, uh, Lehman Brothers goes bankrupt. Bear Stearns gets bought. Merrill Lynch gets purchased by BOA. The stock market's down 60, 70%. And I I got laid off in 2008. And I I was really, actually, I was in New York City uh, when I got a call from the CEO and the director of HR. They're like, oh, do you have a minute? I'm like, I do. They're like, oh, you know, we're laying off 40% of the company. Uh, I was secretly very happy. I didn't like that job. I didn't like my boss. So I really looked at it as a great opportunity. I got a package. And literally, as soon as I got that phone call, I started uh, planning. Uh, That was November of 08, 2009, January. I went on a 11-month trip around the world. Wow. Alone, solo? Oh, let me think. I mean, I was mostly alone and... Uh, I would have a combination of some people meeting me at some points, and I would visit friends at some points, but at least 50% I was by myself. So you get fired. Okay, I'm going to travel the world. Did you travel a lot as a child? Um, my parents are definitely travelers, but more of – what's the word I want to use? Like a generic traveler, so taking a cruise mm-hmm. or – you know, going to somewhere in the Caribbean for a week. Um, but they definitely enjoy travel and, you know, they 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 did a fair amount over the years. Growing up, I actually went on two really big trips to Asia with my family because we had friends actually in the Philippines as well. So we went to visit them and added on uh, Hong Kong and Japan on those trips. So that definitely opened up my eyes. Was there a moment, monument, or like even a landmark, maybe a dish or a food that when you were traveling, you're like, okay, this this is for me. Like sometimes when you see something or you taste something or you're like, I met these people, like I need to start traveling the more, uh, traveling more. Um, not necessarily food, but I mean, one thing I think, and it's still one of my favorite sites today. It's the Hong Kong city scape. Mm-hmm. So standing in Kowloon. And looking over to Hong Kong Central at night is, I mean, one of the most spectacular views in the world. And that's something I saw as a kid. And, you know, that city, you know, if we want to call it the New York of Asia, I mean, there's so much energy. It's a 24-hour city. It's it's pretty incredible there. That's actually – I'm going to – I'll text it to you when we hang up. That's the background of my phone with my wife and I. You see – I want everybody to see that, you know, the water is nice and dark and the buildings are lit up and – the water looks like pink and green and blue and white. It's one of the most fascinating, I guess, sites you can ever see. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I just think it's fantastically beautiful. So whether you're in Kowloon or on the top of Victoria Peak, it's hard to beat that cityscape. Uh, a couple of days ago when I knew you were coming on, I went to your site, which I've gone to a million times as I uh, follow you traveling around the world. And you're not only a traveler, you're a, a reader slash author. On your site, uh, globalgaz.com, you have a list of books to read for all 193 countries. That's one of the coolest, most unique things because I'm an obsessive reader, guys. So when I saw – like you go, you scroll down to, you know, A, there'll be like uh, Armenia and there'll be a book about it. And you scroll down to the Congo and there's a book about that. That is fascinating. Um, well, it's, I guess it's sort of like a secondary project of mine. And I think it, uh, 2004, I went to St. Petersburg in Russia. Mm-hmm. And I before that trip, I read the biography of Peter the Great and – I mean, St. Petersburg is just one of the best cities, period. But reading this book made the city 10 times better because everything I saw and everything I did was given context by that book. So that is always the inspiration that I try and read one or two books before every country. And then I thought it'd be fun to create, you know, the 193 best travel books in the world, one for each country. When I was younger, I guess maybe I was around just say 1920, maybe 21. I read The Beach by Alex Garland, and I remember saying, oh, you know what? Eventually, maybe I'll travel. Okay. Like I never traveled. I went to Mexico once in high school with my friends, and I read the book, uh, The Beach by Alex Garland, and that was it. Like I said I'll never consider myself a traveler till I've gone to Thailand because mm. they talk about Khao San Road and these fascinating beaches. So what's your favorite travel book? Was it that one about Thailand also? Um, my favorite, well, I do love that book. It's pretty, and he's a really inspirational guy, but I'm going to say my favorite book, my favorite travel book is, uh, Shantaram. Do you know that one? I do not. Definitely add it to your list. It's a, from what I can tell, it's, it's the author. It's based on his life. It's like 5% actually his life and 95% fictionalized. (laughs) Okay. But, But it's an epic. It's a thousand pages and it traces his life. He ends up in jail uh, in Australia or New Zealand for heroin, breaks out, and this part's real, breaks out and ends up in Mumbai or Bombay in the 1980s in India. And it's, to me, it's just the most compelling, fascinating storytelling I've ever read. And I really cannot recommend that book enough. Now, you also authored a couple of books? Well, we'll we'll use author in a very generous term. So uh, (laughs) I don't don't want to insult real authors. Um, So technically, I've written three books, or I have three books for a purchase on Amazon. Uh, One is just really a photo book, almost like a coffee table, but it's just an e-book. I did um, a two-day, one-night trip to Chernobyl. Um, and I took, you know, 200 of my best photos and created a photo book for Chernobyl. Um, the other two books, one is called 7,000 Kilometers to Go, and the other one is called Hit the Road India. Uh, I took place in a rally. Rally is, I guess, driving from point A to point B. So I drove in a semi-competitive race, we'll call it, from Budapest to Yerevan. It was like 11 countries and 7,000 kilometers. And my books. Yeah, explain this. Explain this. It's like 
I mean, there's so many different types of travelers out there, right? You know, you have someone who's, you know, crazy about Disney. You have people who just travel for food or people who just do trekking or, you know, marathons. So, I mean, there's almost this subculture where there's a half a dozen or so companies organizing kind of these epic races or rallies around the world. So um, I was in Armenia one day and I saw this giant banner outside of this cafe and it said Caucasian Challenge. And it had some really cool graphics on it. And I ran off to the internet cafe uh, so you can guess what year it was. And I Googled it and I'm like, oh, my God, the, I mean, I'm 100% doing this next year. It was like the most epic adventure. Um, so, yeah, we took off from Budapest. Uh, I was with two friends. We ended up buying a car in Budapest. And I think there were probably 10 teams total in oh. over 17 days. We drove from Budapest to Yerevan, and it was just an amazing, epic journey. Uh, and then, that, yeah, and then I just took that story and I kind of made it into a small book. Well, that's what I was going to ask. While traveling, are you just jotting stuff down like this is an epic adventure? I'm going to make this a book. You know, I was doing I, I was doing one of those deals where I was doing some fundraising for some charities. So I had created a website blog, so I was doing some updating on that, and I think I was making notes. Um, I take a lot of photos, so I'm also able to kind of jog my memory just by the you know large quantity of photos I take. So that's also part of how I recollect my memories. And then uh, you said photos from Chernobyl. Where did the idea come from, and uh, how is it visit visiting the uh, exclusion zone? Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it, you know, it's like you try and put together that list of top experiences and that list ends up getting pretty long. But I mean, it, I, and now it's even become, you know, I would say much more common, especially with the uh, Chernobyl HBO miniseries. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's, for me, I absolutely loved it and it was just amazing walking around for two days and exploring uh, the exclusion zone. So really a must do if you're interested in that type of thing. Where do you stay while you're there? Um, inside the exclusion zone, if I have this correct, there's there's basically two hostels that you can stay at within the zone. So okay. it's a very, very simple structure. Um, you know, I don't I mean, it's probably only like 10 rooms or something. So. Uh, stayed on, stayed in there, and they had a little restaurant with vodka, of course. <laughs> now, guys, you're a country counter for you because everyone has a different answer of a requirement. What counts as a visit? What constitutes I visited this country for you? And Mike, as you know, because you've spoken with uh, my peers, that's probably one of the more controversial mm -hmm. questions within the. Uh, travel industry, so to speak. Uh, my personal rule is airports don't count and tapping your foot over the border doesn't count. So let me give you the two that you mean. The tapping the border is what everyone has done. I've done it, and I, that's why I do not count North Korea. When I was in South Korea, you stepped over in the, in the DMZ. That does not count as visiting North Korea. And the airports, my number would be 15, 15 or 20 more countries. Mm. So for me, and everyone asks me, Listen, there's some countries you want to stay there for a month, but you sometimes you can't. For me, it's leaving the airport, having a meal, 
meeting a local, having a beer. For me, that's outside the airport, going into town. That's for me visiting the country. Yeah, I, I would say uh, uh, same for me at some level. And now, what number are you at right now? Um, I just finished uh, my 140th country uh, probably about two weeks ago. Shortest amount of time you ever spent in a country? Shortest was um, probably just 90 minutes. And where was that? And I am going back. So mm -hmm. uh, it's Montenegro. And okay. when I was doing that uh, 7,000 kilometer journey, we got lost and ended up in Montenegro by mistake. So we thought we were about to enter, I think, Kosovo or something like that. And we made a wrong turn and we ended up driving through Montenegro. Give me two or three cities or countries that aren't high or hot on the traveler's map that more people should be going to. Um, uh -oh. I'll, I'll start off with, and I mean, it's popular for some, but I'm going to, I'm going to start off with Uzbekistan. I just finally, finally got there, um, just the other month. And it, I mean, I had high expectations for that country and it definitely met them and went over. Um, and in the last two years, uh, you know, their president of like 20 or something years died and they have a new president, and he changed a ton of the rules to make the country so much more travel-friendly. So it's so much easier to get into and less red tape. The infrastructure is all there. The cost, it's a cheap country, and the stuff to see on the Silk Road is amazing. Mm -hmm. I also went out to the far west to the RLC, so you can have some pretty cool adventure out there. And even the capital is a lot nicer than what the average – you know, review is saying of that of that city. So big buy on people really need to go to Uzbekistan. Fantastic country. Okay, give me one more good one. I'm gonna say Mauritania. Um so that is um north of Senegal and south of Morocco slash Western Sahara. Mm -hmm. And I forget the exact stats, but let's say it's like three times bigger than the United Kingdom. It's like 90% desert, the Sahara, and there's only several million people there. But this is a country, you know, we all say off the beaten path. I would say this definitively fits on off the beaten path. If I was there nine days in the country, I probably saw 20 tourists during that time period. So if you want a mix of Arab and black African culture in a desert setting in this really ancient place, go check out Mauritania. Pretty fascinating. When I go to the bar with Lee or if I'm hanging out and stuff, and obviously traveling always comes up, the first thing they always ask him is, North Korea, you've been there? But I've talked about that <laughs> a bunch on here. My yeah. one question for you is you are a United States citizen. Uh, how'd you get there? Because I'm still trying to go, and it's a no-go with you know, young pioneer tours and even putting in for media requests or anything. So how did you get to go there? Yeah, well, there's you know, before Trump and after Trump. So um, there was a law or regulation changed uh, the other year, which prevented American citizens from traveling to North Korea. Um, if you went before that law, as you know, it's a relatively straightforward exercise you contact one of the companies that brings in Westerners. You send up your passport scan uh, 30 or 60 days before the trip. 
you fly to Beijing, you get meet your group, and then you fly to North Korea. It's pretty straightforward. Unfortunately, you're in a real challenging situation. And in fact, an American just got arrested today for illegally entering North Korea. So if you take a look at the New York Times, you'll see that article. Wait, did he get arrested for going to North Korea or did he do something in North Korea? I think it might have been a combination of both. Um, he is a cryptocurrency type guy, and he might have been advising the North Koreans on how to best use uh, cryptocurrency. Um, but he went to North Korea illegally because he was told by the U.S. government not to go. He went regardless. So uh, when he's charged, I assume one of those charges is also going to be illegally entering North Korea. Uh, like two weeks ago or three weeks ago, I texted you because we were supposed to be in Bhutan at the same time. And you're like, sorry, change of plans. I hit up the stands. I'm supposed to go to Pakistan in February. So what do you th what's your thoughts on Pakistan? Because a guy I work with, uh, his family's getting married out there. And I'm going to go out there with him in February. Do you enjoy Pakistan? Yeah, Pakistan. Obviously, there's a ton of uh, stereotypes uh, you know, in the media and with everybody who consumes any media. But it is a – I have to say it's a fantastic country. So I just did two and a half weeks there in September. Um, my only complaint was it was like 110 degrees. So <laughs> definitely don't go in summer. Um, but that country offers so much. And this is another situation because of the media, because of perceptions. Th there's no one there. There's no tourists there. You own the whole country when you go. Random one. Afghanistan. You mentioned you went there. You texted me you went there. How'd you get there? Where'd you go there? I always find let – me, let me explain, guys, because I'm picking random ones. Sometimes I'll pick Micronesia or you know, a, a place that no one really goes to. So what made you choose Afghanistan and what cities did you go to there? Well, it's not so much choosing Afghanistan because all of us on this quest, like yourself, we end up going everywhere. Yeah, we have so, to go these places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So really, it's not choosing. It's just a matter of time and scheduling. Um, so I mentioned, you know, I don't make that much money from blogging. Um, but what I do do is create relationships with uh, providers in the industry. So there's a company called Untamed Borders out of London which specializes in bringing travelers to countries like Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, et cetera, et cetera. I met with one of the co-founders earlier this summer, um, and one thing led to another, and I am a, we'll call a brand ambassador for Untamed Borders. So the idea was, Rick, choose a trip that we offer you go on the trip and then you create content and market this trip on our behalf. Um, so I went there with uh, this company, Afghanistan. And back, you know, back to that question of, you know, what counts, what doesn't count. Um, you know, I think there's some logic. Uh, I was talking to my tour guide in <laughs> Afghanistan and he told me about one of his clients who came for two hours. <laughs> so, he was an American guy, actually, in New York City, and okay. I, guess his, I guess his job was some sort of like national security consultant, and he specialized in Afghanistan. All right. And he literally flew to Kabul, left the airport. My friend, the guide, drove him around for two hours in Kabul, 
and then he went back to the airport and left. Wow. Okay. I guess he was counting that country, I guess. I think he counted it. I mean, he probably did have a meal. But, I mean, the, the logic at some level is, I mean, you know, there is a chance of violence or death. So mm-hmm. the logic might be, you know, you go for two hours, there's a lot less opportunity for something bad to happen uh, to you. Um, the trip I went on was two weeks, which I felt was really kind of a, a good amount of time to explore the country. We went to the capital, Kabul. Mm-hmm. We went up north to Mazi Sharif. We went to the far west near Iran in a town called Herat. And then sort of in the middle, a town called Bamiyan set in the mountains. Any sticky situations there? Yeah. So in the back of my mind, because, I, you know, at some level, I guess I'm paranoid, you know, every day or you know, a couple of times a day, you're like, oh, is this the point a suicide bomber comes in and takes out our car? Mm-hmm. Um, never happened. Obviously, the people are people. They're nice. They're hospitable, at least all the ones I met. Uh, but also to put it in context, um, I left on a Tuesday. On Wednesday, there was a suicide bombing attacking a convoy going to the airport and like 10 people died. And during my two weeks there, I was at the airport eight times. So it's a numbers game, right? Oh, wow. Oh, God, yeah. How was the food there? Food was good. Um, It's part Indian, part Iranian, I would say. So I'm sort of a picky food eater. But for me, that's okay. You know, you're eating chicken kebabs and Mm -hmm. salads and bread. So I, I enjoyed it overall. I'm going to ask you a generic question. I just saw the tiger's nest in Bhutan. Blew me away. Literally took my breath away. Two or three landmarks or monuments that for you, when you saw them, it actually stopped you in your tracks. Awesome question. Um, and there's just so many. So we'll we'll pick a couple. I'll do the Grand Mosque in Jenny. So mm-hmm. that's in Mali. Mm-hmm. And that's the biggest mud structure in the world in a ancient walled city. So to see that place at sunset is pretty awesome. What does 2020 have in store for you, travel-wise? Yeah, 2020, um, for me, it's hopefully going to be like an aggressive year of new countries. Um, In late February, I'm doing a uh, seven-country West African trip with six of them being new countries. Really? And now do you do it with a tour guide, a tour group, or are you doing that yourself? So – um, so, uh, three years ago, I went to Burkina Faso for like five nights mm-hmm. and through a friend in the community, I got connected to a local driver. So that, we drove. That's what you need. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So we drove around for five days and, you know, he, he and, you know, you, you sit in the car for 24 hours a day for five <laughs> days, just you and him, you know, you, you have the potential of being, you know, kind of good friends at that point. Yeah. Um, we started talking more and I'm like thinking, I'm like, wait a minute. I'm like, West Africa in some respects is a difficult place to travel. Um, how about if I overlay this driver on another part of West Africa? So I'm talking, I'm like, Marlon, what, what do you think about doing driving outside of Burkina Faso? So last November, We did six countries in West Africa, so Benin, Togo, Ghana, Ivory Coast, Burkina Faso, Mali. And uh, next year, I'm going to do the final six with them. And what six of those? 
Well, I'm actually starting in Burkina Faso. There's a mask festival. So we're going to start off, go there for the mask festival, and then do Senegal, Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Guinea, Sierra Leone, and Liberia. And now how long are you going to be there for? I think it's going to be about a month. What? That's incredible, man. Over, I think you said over 150 countries. Give me one country that's really mainstream that you haven't been to yet. Yeah. This is always a fun question. So the surprising country would be uh, Ireland. <laughs> me, guys, for me, it's a five-hour trip. I've never been there either. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, biggest hurdle with visas so far is from what country? Um, I've been. I just tried to go to Turkmenistan September October this year, and I was rejected. And that's my, in essence, second rejection from Turkmenistan. Now, why did you get rejected? I thought the visa process was pretty straightforward with that. Well, the process is straightforward. Like, you don't have to do a lot of work. Yeah. But the approval rate, I mean, I heard, you know, it is not, it's not 100%. It's probably, you know, it's under, it's probably like 80% or 70% or something like that. Um, the first time I applied, uh, I was traveling with a group. The trip was going to be over Turkmenistan Independence Day. Okay. No one from the group got a visa for the dates we applied for, but they said we could come two weeks after the fact. Um, and, that didn't, and that didn't work for you? The, uh, no, the schedule didn't work for me because I had other trips planned. And then I applied for the same trip over Independence Day. <laughs> I guess I didn't learn. Um, over this past September, and I think there are probably 15 people on the group in the group, and I was like one of five who did not get the visa. Does it bother you as a traveler, country uh, country counter, if the opportunity comes around to visit Greenland or the Faroe Islands? Uh, do you not go there because it's like, okay, I'll be a waste of money and time. I'd rather get my goal first and then eventually go back there. Uh, great question, and yes and no. So um, I had a friend of mine email me. He's like, hey, uh, and this guy loves Lake Bacal in Siberia, mm -hmm. and he's been like four times, and he's like, hey, I'm going up in February. Do you want to join? And I would love to go to Lake Bacal. Um, but I did say no thank you because, yeah, my focus is kind of on new countries, Um and doing that, but in the same way, you know, uh, I had 10 new countries in uh, 2019, but I also had 10 repeats. Oh, I, I hate the repeats. And people get <laughs> mad at me. I'm like, no, I, I don't want to go there. They're like, why? I'm like, because I've been there. I'll go there if I can bang out another two or three next to them. But yeah, yeah, hey, yeah. you went to Antarctica, though, didn't you? Yeah, I went to Antarctica in 2009. So on, yeah, a, cruise, on a cruise or you flew there? Yeah, I mean, ninety-nine percent of people who go there go on the cruise. So, mm -hmm. yeah, you go. Most people go down to Ushuaia and Terra del Fuego in Argentina, and you take the cruise through the Drake Passage, and then you spend, I think, four days um, hitting parts of Antarctica on this little finger that sticks out. I mean, that's kind of the generic trip that many people do when they go to Antarctica. Did you love that, or was it more like, okay, I've been to Antarctica? No, loved it. Would love to go back. It was fantastic. It's, I mean, the natural beauty, I mean, is just second to none. And then you throw in 5,000 penguins when you jump yes, off yes. the boat. It's 
that's fantastic. What documentary were you in? So um, I, I produced two documentaries and I was in two documentaries. So we spoke about those rallies. My second rally was in India where there's another race operated by a company called the Travel Scientist where you drive a rickshaw. So rickshaw. <laughs> yep. Okay. So rickshaw is a three wheeled semi open vehicle. That's you know a lot of times just used as a taxi within cities. And to put into context, it's only seven horsepower. You buy a riding lawnmower in the U S it's 20 or 30 horsepower. So it's a mix of insanity and adventure. Uh, my, Route was driving from Mumbai to Chennai. It was 12 days and 2,000 kilometers. And I I have two friends who are professional filmmakers. They accompanied me, and they followed me and my other friend who was driving the rickshaw, and they filmed the whole adventure, and we created a 80-minute documentary called Hit the Road India. That is awesome. Um Hey guys, everyone thinks they can be a travel vlogger or blogger or podcaster. You have, you know, one of the few travel sites that gets a lot of traffic. You're known. Your podcast is awesome. What advice do you give people? Because like, I don't do Instagram. I don't do Facebook. I'm just not a social media person. What gives you, like, what advice do you give when people come to you and go, "Hey, I want to travel the world and make money doing it"? What, what advice? Yeah, I, I mean, the big piece of advice is simply staying power. Um, I have a friend of mine, um, Dave, from Dave's Travel Corner. He started blogging in 1996. Oh, wow. Wow. Yep. He's one of the OGs. And <laughs> Dave has a list of travel blogs. It's like 10,000 travel blogs URL links on his website. And once a year, he goes through those links. And every year, he deletes 20 or 30% of those links because the links no longer function or the people who have the blogs haven't updated them in three or six or nine months. So, so like, you, it's, it's staying power. You need to keep up and up on this stuff and you hopefully can be somewhat successful at it. I mean, day one, uh, uh, kind of like a friend of mine, she emailed me the other day and she's like, Oh, how can I work with brands and companies? <laughs> um, and the reality is she can't at some level. So in other words, she's only been blogging for a month. Her social media numbers are low. So it doesn't matter what business you're in, but what can you offer the client? And at her stage, she really can't offer that much. So I said, you know, you're not going to be able to call some company and get a 20-day cruise to Antarctica. But what you should do is call 20 companies in your town and do – half day and full day tours. So do a food tour, do a walking tour and do all these, create content for them. And like anything, you got to build up your resume. One country that never lived up to the hype. You're going there thinking, okay, this is going to blow my socks off. It didn't live up to the hype. Uh, and this is a country loved by many, but I had really high expectations. Uh, Ethiopia. Okay. Yeah, they're big, they're big promoting traveling and stuff, and you, why didn't you like it? Well, yeah, I mean, I did have high expectations. I mean, it's this ancient, unique culture um, in Africa. Um, so there's two reasons I didn't like it. One, 
and I apologize to any Ethiopians. I didn't like the people. Um, I kind of divide the people into two categories. The first category of people was, hey, you, give me some money. Mm -hmm. And the second category was, oh, can I practice English with you? I'm a college student. And then after one minute, it was give me money. (laughs) Um, Then I had, you know, some people throwing stones at me. um, And I sort of had a, I mean, it felt like an attempted mugging in the middle of the day by two teenagers. Um, I went to visit this monument in the the middle of town, open to the public, and there's some caretaker there. He's like, give me money, give me money. Uh, I wouldn't give him money. And he literally, him and this other guy started chasing me, you know, away from the monument. So people are not my favorite. And then number two, um, I was kind of disappointed. Like, I, you know, Addis Ababa had some preconceived notion that I was going to be this really cool, amazing city. I probably spent like four nights there, mm-hmm. and that might be three nights too many. Really? Um, okay. Yeah. You know, you know, guys, they, I've never been there yet, but they make it seem like you come there. This is like a huge up-and-coming thriving city. Well, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely a big city. It's, you know, an important city in Africa because I think, you know, the African Union is based there. So, I mean, it's a vibrant city, but I mean, it's not beautiful. There's not that many interesting things to see or do. Uh, You know, the traffic sucks. It's an urban sprawl. Um, And then I'll pick on uh, Lalabella. Lalabella is this uh, other town uh, famous for its subterranean or under, underground rock churches. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I was really psyched to go here. Let's say, I think there's like nine of them. Eight of them have these ugly metal hangers built over them. <laughs> so I'm a guy that loves to take photos. I didn't take photos of them because it was just so aesthetically not pleasing. It just ruined the whole experience. There's one church called St. George's, which does not have a hanger on it, and that is magnificent. Now let's flip the switch, turn the cards over. One country that exceeded your expectations, like, holy crap, this country was amazing, and I thought it was going to suck. Um, I'm not going to say it's amazing, amazing, but I'll give you kind of an example of, <laughs> you know, at some level, I mean, if I, was chase- if I wasn't chasing 193, I doubt I would ever go to this country. It's a Burundi, so next to Rwanda. Mm-hmm. And Burundi, you know, it's a small African country on the lake. It's also had a ton of civil strife and wars over the years. Um, and I did a three-day, two-night trip. And I had a you know guide lined up to drive me around for a couple of days. And it was kind of average in many ways, except for one major exception. So... We drew, drove outside of the capital for a couple hours, and we end up basically on this hillside in this small village. And again, you know, there's not there's there's not really any tourists there. I'm the only tourist here, and I had a exclusive performance by the royal drummers of Burundi. Because you're the only tourist there. Well, it's a command performance because I paid for it. Okay. Um, so it's. Probably 200 villagers and me watching 25 performers play drums, dance, and sing for an hour. And the the great thing about travel sometimes, you know, is not being prepared. 
I knew of the Royal Drummers, but mm-hmm. I couldn't tell you one thing about them. I didn't watch any videos on them, pictures, articles. So I knew this was on my itinerary. I'd heard of them, but I was just, I mean, blown away. So Burundi at some level, in my opinion, is 100% worth going to just to see the Royal Drummers. Any souvenirs? You a souvenir guy when you go somewhere to uh, signify going to that place? Like, and I probably stopped this maybe either 10 or 15 years ago. I used to buy a small picture or photo that I would hang on my wall. Um, But I stopped that many years ago. So my only souvenir, uh, my only souvenir in general are the photos I take. Let's do all the plugs for social media, the Twitter, the Instagram, (laughs) all that good stuff. Let's give the plug for you. Uh, thanks, Mike. Um, well, the blog is globalgaz.com. So not global gaze, not global gas, global gaz, G-A-Z. And then Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, same thing, global gas. And now where can everyone listen to one of my favorite podcasts and who's next on the list? Counting countries. I, it's probably the same as your podcast. So we can do a joint plug. But it'll be Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I want to give a, my personal plug for it. Even if you're not a traveler, even if you have zero desire to travel, your thing isn't the same generic question. You get so much out of the guests by talking to them, letting them talk about why they travel. And each person you might have had – I might be off maybe 60 guests, 70 guests, maybe more. And every guest has a completely different story of why they travel. And, dude, you do such a good job with it, man. It really is one of my favorite podcasts. I, I totally appreciate it, Mike. And I've been listening to yours and enjoying it as well. Global Gaz, I don't want to wish you good luck for the Patriots, but my wife will listen <laughs> to this, so I have to act like I care. And I'm like, go Pats, go Tom Brady. My friend, safe travels. And I really do. I know we tried to link up in Bhutan. I'm pretty sure with my travels, your travels, we're going to link up somewhere. We'll have some uh, shawarma. All right, my friend? I would love that, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Brother, thank you so much, man. Have a great day.